There are probably a lot of interesting molecules and plants that we've overlooked because we haven't had this context through which to evaluate them, to think about what might these cannabinoids do in the body or what sort of therapeutic compounds might we be able to make from them. Cannabis has kind of opened this doorway into an entirely new frontier of biomedical research, biochemical research that's going to be playing out indefinitely. You're listening to Narcotica, a podcast giving you the straight dope about drugs and the people who use them. Around 46% of Americans, nearly half the population, now have access to adult-use cannabis, which is a better way of saying recreational weed. It doesn't imply people are just trying to get faded. Marijuana is a medicine if it's cultivated or extracted right, and millions of people find relief or even pleasure from this fantastic plant. But as legalization accelerates, regulations have struggled to keep up. Most experts and maybe many consumers would agree that cannabis is not well regulated or could use some improvements. Meanwhile, new cannabinoids like Delta-8, THC, THCO, HHC, and more are hitting the streets, licit and illicit. This is a rapidly changing environment, which is far beyond THC and CBD, the two most well-known drugs in marijuana. I'm Troy Farah, and you're listening to Narcotica. We have a great show for you today, all about the science of cannabinoids and much more. But first, here's our one and only advertisement. Please support Narcotica on Patreon if you can and aren't already. Not a lot of podcasts last as long as we have. We've made more than 60 episodes about so many different types of drugs and drug culture and public health initiatives that are related to drug policy. All of it freely available to the public because we want to help people who use drugs be safer and healthier. Go to patreon.com slash narcotica and then message us. We'll mail you stickers or give you a shout out on the show. And my wife, Ryan, she just designed this beautiful coffee mug that we hope people will be able to order soon. We're bringing you more stuff as much as we can. That's it. Patreon.com slash Narcotica. Thanks for listening. And now on to the program. My guest today is Jason Wilson, based in Medford, Oregon, and host of the Curious About Cannabis podcast and author of the book of the same name, both of which can be found at CACpodcast.com. Jason is the founder of Natural Learning Enterprises. He's a biologist and science educator who has been studying the biochemistry of the cannabis plant and cannabis-derived products for nearly a decade. Jason has done work with groups like the International Institute for Cannabinoids and serves as a member on the board of directors for the Oregon Cannabis Education and Resource Center. Jason, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Happy to be here. Let's start with some basics. Uh, you know, why are you interested in cannabis and uh, what are you excited to learn about in the future? Uh, great question. So um, my connection to cannabis goes kind of far back. So as early as like when I was 12 or 13 years old, I got really fascinated in studying drugs in general. So I was always known in high school as like that guy that knew everything about cannabis and psychedelics and, you know, all of these different things. But I never thought that would become like a professional part of my life. But when I got into college, I was in this interesting position. I was going to the University of Mississippi, where some people listening probably know that the University of Mississippi has one of the only federally legal cannabis research and development labs. And as I was going to school there, I was also working for the IT department for the college. And I ended up 
getting a lot of experience in labs for some reason, probably because of my interest in science and stuff. I always took the calls whenever someone in a science department, you know, called. So I ended up spending quite a bit of time in the NIDA cannabis lab there, helping them fix equipment and stuff and got to know the researchers there. They gave me all sorts of tours and showed me all the research they were doing. And it was super fascinating. And, you know, <laughs> that version of me in my early 20s, you know, was so excited because of the version of me that was 13 years old, you know, starting to study the science of all of these things. It just kind of came around full circle. So I decided at that time, with the encouragement of, of some of those researchers that I knew there, to start to pivot into natural products research in general. And once again, didn't actually think I'd have the chance to work with cannabis just wanted to work with medicinal plants and understand how they work, basically, and ended up moving out to Oregon for grad school. And I ended up becoming a medical marijuana patient. I have several back injuries, spinal cord injuries, and ended up engaging with cannabis that way. And through kind of getting involved in the cannabis community in Oregon, ended up discovering while I was in grad school that there was a natural products lab that was thinking about playing with cannabis. So I was like, well, that's really interesting and connects to, you know, all of these, you know, interesting kind of points in my, in my past. So I reached out to them and uh, mentioned that, Hey, I'm in grad school, I'll be finishing up soon. I'm currently a botanist with Bureau of Land Management, but want to be, you know, kind of doing more natural products work. And one thing led to another. I went for an interview. I ended up being one of the first employees that were hired to start to build out this cannabis side of this lab. We ended up building a lab called Kinevere Research, which was one of the first cannabis testing labs and research and development labs in Southern Oregon. Uh, we ended up being one of the first accredited labs in the state. And that catapulted me into this journey I've been on of investigating the chemistry and contaminants, microbiology, and everything of the cannabis plant, and all of these myriad of products that end up emerging in the industry. It's, it's been a wild journey. Yeah, and I've really been enjoying your podcast because, uh, you know, there's not a lot of cannabis podcasts out there that are actually kind of technical and scientific. And a lot of them are just about like, you know, getting high or about the business side of things. And I really appreciate that you are bringing on these guests that can like talk about some of this obscure stuff. You know, as a journalist, cannabis is one of my favorite things to cover because it's just so connected to culture and politics and health policy and science. And and, and there's always something new going on in the science department with cannabis. Like there's always stuff that we're still learning. And I think that's really interesting. I've been fascinated by the rollout of these new THC analogs. Some of them aren't like technically new. I right, mean, right. They, they go back, the discovery of them is, uh, you know, decades, but they're new in the fact that they're, they're appearing in cannabis vaporizers or edibles or people are taking them, these sort of obscure THC analogs. And they're, they're kind of going mainstream, which is, it's fascinating yeah. to watch. Yeah. So I kind of want to talk about a lot of these, you know, people probably have a lot of questions about these new drugs, what they do. Where are all these analogs coming from? Are they safe? But I think the first question I have is, how is any of this legal? I mean, I sort of know the answer. It all kind of right. stems from the 2018 Farm Bill, which legalized hemp, a version of cannabis uh, sativa that is low in THC and high in CBD. Uh, but where does Delta-8 THC come in, and how is it legal in the first place? Delta-8 is literally only one carbon bond different from Delta-9 THC, which yeah. is the drug most people know gets you high. 
Right. Yeah. I mean, it, <laughs> you'll get very different passionate opinions about this question, depending on who you ask. I mean, there's a, the argument for why it's legal usually goes something, you know, around the fact that the, the farm bill made all of the constituents of the hemp plant legal, you know, so if you're making products uh, where you're extracting different compounds out of the hemp plant and isolating those compounds and using them, theoretically, that should be fine and legal. The uh, argument against the legality of these products is that actually these aren't truly hemp derived products. They're for the the things that you've listed, like Delta 8 THC, uh, THCP, THCO acetate, HHC, and we'll get into all of those, but and Delta 10 THC. The forms of these that you're seeing on the market are all being primarily derived from CBD. And so basically you had the situation where in 2018 and 2019, the market got flooded with hemp. Just tons of people jumped into the market, huge crops um, here in Oregon. I mean, it was amazing to see like over the course of just a year or two, you just have these massive hemp farms all over the place, all over the countryside. And so there was a surplus and the demand wasn't quite there, despite how popular CBD, you know, got around that time, there was a huge surplus and a lot of farmers were left with material that they didn't know how to move. A lot of extractors were left with CBD distillate and other extracts that they didn't know what to do with. And so someone then decided like, hey, you could actually use CBD as a precursor and by adding some strong acids and, you know, other chemistry techniques, you can actually convert CBD to all of these other cannabinoids, uh, many of which have, yeah, I never know the quite, quite the, the right phrase to use here, but I guess intoxicating properties, psychoactive is never quite the right word because CBD is psychoactive too. But, you know, all of these things can get you high in some form. And so it opened this doorway to what people perceive to be legal ways to get high. However, the DEA's put out memos about this, you know, pointing out that synthetically derived THC analogs and isomers, you know, are certainly not uh, in their mind, um, you know, uh, in the spirit of the farm bill and, and still violate the Controlled Substances Act, but there hasn't really been enforcement. So it's left this big gray open, gray area open uh, where people are saying, well, the DEA is not really going after anybody and the FDA is not really doing anything. So let's just move forward and see what happens. And, you know, that's led to a lot of things that make me nervous. <laughs> yeah. And I kind of want to unpack some of those concerns because I have a lot of them as well. You know, I mean, obviously, I think we both agree cannabis should be legal, but, you know, we don't want these random isomers. Some of them are really difficult to extract too. you know, THCO acetate, which is allegedly three times as potent as THC. It's sometimes called the psychedelic cannabinoid, uh, which is an interesting debate we can get into. But uh, apparently it's very dangerous to make THCO. Yeah, I mean, you know, so one of the the issues with all of this is a, a lot of the entities that are manufacturing these products are what you would classify as kind of amateur chemists. You know, they know um, enough to get through the process and get, you know, a product made but they often don't have the expertise necessary to fully 
you know, characterize that product, prove the purity of that product and establish a lot of sophisticated quality controls, you know, and, and to actually validate the process. You know, if you're, if you're ever manufacturing a chemical, you know, my background in labs and stuff is I was heavily involved in quality systems engineering and stuff. So I'm always thinking about, you know, you, you have to validate your process so that you even know whether you can rely on the process that you're using to produce a clean product. So, you know, my experience with some of these things in the testing lab, you know, when we look at um, any of these products and they've been around a long time, like you mentioned, I remember testing Delta eight products back in 2014 or so, you know, but they were in the medical and adult use markets at that time, medical in Oregon and weren't that well known. Um, But when you test these products, you often see just tons of mostly kind of mystery ingredients in there. These when you test products, you create a graph called a chromatogram and you have all these peaks and valleys and the peaks tell you, you know, that there's a molecule there and the bigger the peak, the wider the peak, the more of that molecule is there. And when you test these products, you see very strange signatures on these graphs compared to what you see in other extracts, true extracts or, or flower. And you can kind of derive what some of these byproducts are because there's a lot of literature out there, for instance, around how to make Delta-8 THC from CBD. And a lot of these different byproducts have been identified and everything. But most labs don't have the reference standards to really accurately identify those things. And there are other things there that we truly don't know what they are. And so that's kind of the first concern is, you know, you have amateur chemists that are taking on, you know, what often seems to be a very simple process, but from like a kind of drug development perspective requires a lot of quality control and, you know, uh, a lot of purity checking and everything. And it's resulting in these, you know, products that just, you know, are exposing people to things that we just don't know what they are. And they may not even be dangerous. We don't know. And that's kind of the big thing. It's just, it's just a big mystery. Yeah. Delta-8 is one of the interesting ones. It's, it is banned in many places, something like 18 states, even though yeah. in, in many of those places, Delta-9 THC is totally legal, and I don't really get the logic there sometimes, but... It's, a lot of it's kind of reactionary. People don't really know, you know, it's like a thing that the hype around it is building, and they don't know how to respond, and so it's a lot easier sometimes to just ban it and then kind of think about it later. But I agree. It makes a lot more sense for all of this stuff to just be encapsulated in any existing THC adult cannabis programs. Yeah. uh, The thing that really interests me about Delta-8 THC is the effects. You know, even though it's only one carbon bond different from Delta-9 THC, it is actually, at least in my experience, a really different feeling. Yeah. And people generally say Delta-8 is less potent than THC with less anxiety and more pain relief. Um, You know, I've tried gummies and vaping it. I don't know if it's placebo or not, but it does seem a little bit smoother. Sometimes I get a little bit of an edge when I smoke a little too much. And it's it's usually manageable. But like with Delta 8, I don't really get that like prickly anxiety feeling. Yeah. And that's that's kind of been my experience. I've only experienced it through vaping. But that's it's kind of like that, just kind of a softer kind of feeling. And I think there's a good place for Delta 8 THC. And that's kind of another side to this whole thing is as we unpack more of these concerns and everything, it's molecules like Delta-8 THC, which actually has gone through some clinical trials that has been given to humans and 
the safety's been evaluated and everything. We actually know a good bit about Delta 8 THC. And so one thing that on, on sort of a flip side that makes me nervous is a lot of the journalism I've seen around Delta 8 just talks about Delta 8, not recognizing that really the concern are all of the things that aren't Delta 8 and that Delta 8 THC as a molecule itself, like there's no reason to vilify or demonize that molecule. It, it does belong, I think, more so, you know, in a, a controlled market with, you know, Delta 9 THC and everything else. But, you know, it's fair. It seems to be just as safe as Delta 9 THC is. You just have to worry about how it's made. Yeah. And there's a lot of like counterfeit Delta 8 products out there. And, and you know, we can get into the whole E-Valley vaping issue where a lot of like illicit stuff or stuff you buy at a gas station just isn't real, isn't very well regulated. And, you know, you're inhaling this stuff. So that can create all kinds of health problems that are a little bit unforeseen. We don't really know a lot about this stuff. And so, yeah, I, I agree with you. It's not really worth anyone's time to vilify a, a compound. I think every compound has some application to some degree. It just needs to be pure and it needs to be applied correctly, you know? And the communication to the customer needs to be honest. And I think that's a big part of this too, that does, you know, uh, segue really well into the Valley stuff of just customers knowing what they're consuming and being able to make an informed decision. And before going into the Valley stuff, something that's funny that, um, I've been thinking about a lot lately, you know, when people talk about THCO, THCP, you know, I often wonder, I'm like, or are they talking about Delta 8 THCP, Delta 8 THCO, Delta 10 THCP? You know, there's all of these forms that can be made. Uh, even with HHC, there, there are different um, uh, kind of forms of that. And so it, being clear with communication about just what molecules are we actually dealing with? How do you know what molecules you have and communicating all of that um, to the customer? That's mainly my perspective is kind of always a harm reduction, you know, kind of thing. If people want to experiment with these molecules, like that's fine. Just be able to do it safely in a way where you're making informed decisions. Um, but then, yeah, the Avali stuff, then you're getting into not just chemical byproducts made from a bad manufacturing practice, but actually additives intentionally put in to products usually to help help them depending on the vape pen help them wick better or draw better or reduce coughing and that sort of thing um and then that's led to some surprises <laughs> yeah yeah um, real quick we should probably define what a valley is for yeah. listeners uh you know e that's e-cigarette or vaping use associated lung injury i know some people don't like that it's called uh e-valley because it's most of these injuries, sort of like one of them is like called popcorn lung. It just makes right. your lungs look awful. Uh, it can cause long-term damage. Some people have died, like uh, less than 70 people. But the CDC also kind of stopped tracking uh, Evali stuff. They, they in, in February 2020, they're just like, oh, the cases have dropped. We'll go do something else. And then COVID happened. And so the CDC has been kind of had their hands full. But... Uh, most of these injuries they've happened uh, involving illicit products. Uh, some of them, they, they don't actually know, and you can correct me on this, but like some of the research that I've looked at has said that like there's strong evidence suggesting that it's vitamin E acetate that's causing these injuries, but it hasn't been entirely proven. Like 
we're not going to have a clinical trial right away. Like people are allowed to smoke this stuff. Um, but it seems like it's like illicit underground market vapes uh, that are tainted with vitamin E acetate. Well, and it's, um, yeah, it's, it's hard to unpack for, you know, a lot of the reasons you just mentioned the timing was kind of awkward because this hit in uh, late 2019, you know, people started getting sick and being admitted to emergency rooms and things for lung failure and, and, and whatnot associated with vape pens. And then you're right that, you know, that went through the winter and then COVID hit shortly after that, at least in the States, you know, um, around February, March, you know, really started to uh, get a lot of attention. And so a lot of the focus on understanding exactly what happened with that did, you know, die off a lot, although there's some research that have been continuing that work and trying to unpack it. And what's, so the vitamin E acetate thing, you know, some people might just be wondering, like, where does that come from? Why would he even, you know, people add vitamin E acetate. So there's a, there's a patent out there on using vitamin E in inhalation delivery methods. And the reason vitamin E is used is because it dramatically reduces the, the cough, you know, reflex. And so when this patent was issued, it was done under this context of trying to develop products for, you know, sick patients and things that really couldn't afford to cough very much and in controlled formulations and doses um, so that they could vaporize THC or CBD and and do so in a bit of a safer way. Well, you know, that patent gets out there and then that's public information. People see that and they're like, okay, well, I might get in trouble for putting vitamin E in a pen, but vitamin E acetate, very similar compound, both vitamin E and vitamin E acetate, you know, commonly used in cosmetics and other things. It's also cheaper. So they start using vitamin E acetate as a cutting agent. And um, vitamin E acetate was found in tissues um, from lungs, you know, associated with the E-Valley stuff that was going on. But you're right that there hasn't been a definitive like causal link established. And what's interesting is in some of that research, they actually found that in some of the products that were tested, they didn't find any vitamin E acetate, but they did find squalene and squalane. And both of those compounds are interesting because they're very unstable. And when they're heated, they can degrade into things like acetone, methanol, formic acid, acetic acid, which can really wreck the tissues in your lungs pretty severely. Also, squalane and, and squalene are, are uh, fairly big molecules. They're triterpenoids. So they have like 30 carbons as their base, much bigger than a cannabinoid or a, a terpene or something like that, but, uh, you know, a smaller terpene that people would be associated with with cannabis. And so these heavier oils, you can just imagine that inhaling long chain fats is generally not a good idea um, for your lungs. Just literally it gunks up your lungs. It makes it harder for you know, gas exchange to happen and things, you can have some oxygen deprivation. And in worst case scenarios, when you're inhaling these heavy fats, you can develop what's called exogenous lipoid pneumonia. And so now there's speculation that vitamin E acetate, you know, may be a part of the problem, but, you know, squalene and and squalene may be a bigger problem. And it would make sense that with it being so unstable, you may not find squalene and squalene in the tissues 
that um, some of these researchers were looking at when they found vitamin E acetate, but you do find it in the formulations of the vape juices um, if you test those. And so that has kind of changed the perspective a little bit on how to evaluate this problem that you really have to take it from both sides, matching, you know, what was the product consumed and testing that product and comparing that to the tissues of the person that consumed the product and understanding these complex, you know, dynamics that happen where you have these chemicals that break down into more, you know, potentially toxic products. And, you know, with if people are consuming these in, you know, really, really frequently, and if they're illicit vapes, then they're probably cut with higher concentrations of these things than you would see in the legal markets. Although you can find these things in the legal markets too. It's very uncommon now, now that people know about it and have called it out and are looking for it. But in general, it, it's not necessarily isolated to the legal markets because a lot of these additives, um, there haven't been rules to test for them. So it's kind of one of those things we had to learn about the hard way. And now additives are getting a much closer look in states that have um, regulations for testing, California, Oregon, a lot of other states that have legalized. So, you know, squalene and squalane may be part of the issue. Vitamin E acetate may be part of the issue. There's also been uh, some speculation about a compound called phytol, which is another fairly big, it's a diterpenoid, um, still a, a pretty big terpene, 20 carbons. Um, and that could be driving some of that too. I think it's probably a very, you know, multivariate issues, lots of things happening simultaneously. Yeah, that is a really good explanation that kind of like puts the whole problem into perspective. Um, and it still is a problem, like even though it's not really making headlines and there's not as many issues, it seems like there's these isolated cases that have been happening. Yeah. And it's like you said, it's it's because there aren't a lot of rules, there's not a lot of scrutiny in these markets. Um, and people can just basically put it whatever the fuck they want in these vapes and yeah, I mean, it's so new too. like regulators, they don't know how to think about it, you know, until something happens. And until there are investigations and things, you know, this is we're just kind of in uncharted territory and a lot of this stuff, but in vaping in general, even with e-cigarettes and, and everything like it's really a new area that we don't have a good handle on of what manufacturers are, you know, exactly doing and how these products affect people, you know, early on when the vape pens came out, a lot of clinicians that I knew were really excited about them because, you know, it's like, oh, this this easier way for people to titrate and, and not have to smoke. And then now a lot of clinicians that I talk to, you know, don't recommend vaping at all, not with vape pens, but they have switched back to, you know, if you're going to vape, use a benchtop vaporizer where you understand, you know, you're adding the product to the vaporizer. So there's no concern about additives and stuff. So it seems like the, um, you know, the, the general feeling around vaping has changed quite a bit just over the past few years. I know a lot of people um, really bristle at any criticism of vaping because, um, you know, they were ex-smokers and vaping helped them quit. Um, for me, psychedelics helped me quit smoking. But, you know, I understand that, uh it's like it's like the pendulum swinging back like there's all this scrutiny of vaporizers and people calling for them to be banned or something like that and it's like that's not no i don't think that's going to help we're always oscillating around the uh you know kind of the the more um kind of 
direct, probably more common sense way to, to handle it. Right. And so I just want to be clear that we're not saying like vaping is necessarily bad or you shouldn't do it or it should be illegal. It's just like it is kind of a new thing. And we are still learning a lot about uh, these additives, um, you know, the nicotine vaporizers. Um, some of them have flavorings. And when those flavorings are called grass, you know, generally regarded as safe by the FDA. But, you know, when you heat it up, that that's not the way that it was labeled as grass. It's like labeled for food. So you can put it in food, but if you vaporize it, it actually can uh, produce benzene, I believe, if it gets yeah. to a high enough temp- temperature. And benzene is known to be cancerous. So it's like we're still learning a lot about how to do this. And I think, you know, talking about it and being really open about the pros and cons of vaping is going to is gonna be beneficial in the long run. Yeah, I mean, it's about just learning how and why you know, to think critically, you know, about these products as they come out. Cause one thing, you know, from my world, spending so much time in the, like the commercial testing space, you know, there's a general consumer attitude that if a product is tested, then it's safe. And so there's been a bit of a learning curve there of just consumers realizing that, oh, okay, just because a product is tested, that doesn't mean it's safe. And I still need to kind of understand what was it tested for and what do we actually know, you know, about these products. So, you know, it seems like all of that's starting to catch up and just takes time. And the grass thing, I'm so glad you pointed that out because one thing that a lot of people don't realize is that products are only grass for their intended use. And it's very rare that you will find a an essential oil, a flavoring compound or whatever that states in its safety data sheet that the intended use is for inhalation. It's almost always, you know, for food or or topical administration. So even though these ingredients are grass for some applications, it doesn't mean they're grass for all applications. And so that's a another side to this that manufacturers are even having to learn, you know, how some of these rules apply um, and and haven't always had to, you know, think so carefully about um, all of these dynamics. Um, it's, it's a brave new world we're in. <laughs> yeah, you know... Um... One thing that's really interesting is kind of sort of the lab shopping kind of thing. Like, you know, mm-hmm. even if something's tested, it has lab results. Like, maybe you can't trust the lab. And that's because even the labs aren't very regulated in some areas. Can we talk about that a little bit? How does that? Yes, I would love to. Because um, that, <laughs> I, I spent so much of my time and energy working, you know, building labs and working on getting labs accredited and and trying to help them improve the quality of their work. So this is something I have a lot of direct experience with and a lot of opinions about. Yeah. I mean, so one of the, the things I like to start off saying is that, you know, just because a lab has an accreditation or some certification or something, it doesn't mean that they do good work. And that's really annoying because the sort of flow with, testing regulations in states around cannabis is usually legalization happens and there's minimal testing or no testing at all in some cases. And then they onboard testing and usually the testing's fairly unregulated. Then they say, okay, you need to be accredited. And everyone assumes that once the labs get accredited, that then all the data becomes trustworthy and we're good to go. And what I saw in the Oregon market, so funny and predictable, when legalization happened and there was also a requirement that required all of the labs to get accredited, you saw an interesting shift uh, just in, you know, talking about lab shopping, which is usually around THC values. 
you saw this interesting global reduction in the average THC value that was reported by every lab across the board. And this was kind of vindicating for me because I was at the time when we were building Kinevir Research, we were struggling as a lab because we were losing clients because our potency values were on average lower than all of our competitors. And we couldn't figure out why. We didn't know what was going on. We participated in um, different sorts of proficiency tests and stuff. And we knew that we were doing things as well as we could at the time with what was known. And then accreditation hit and everyone met our average. And we were like, whoa, okay. So now you can see who had been inflating numbers and you know all this stuff. But that only lasted for maybe eight months. Um, and then you start seeing these average potency values creep back up. And so then the question is, well, did products change? Like what changed? And the main thing that changes is just that as labs get their accreditations and they get comfortable, they then fall into the same dynamics that they were under pressure for before, which is, you know, clients want to see high THC values or high CBD values if it's a CBD crop or a CBD product, because usually the dispensaries are indexing price off of those numbers Extraction labs are often indexing prices based on those numbers. So, you know, what someone's going to get paid uh, is tied to that number. And so people lab shop, people try to find the labs that are going to produce those higher numbers. And so that then, you know, makes it very hard for labs that are reporting, you know, statistically better data to stay around because they lose clients. And so you start to see this race to the bottom that starts to happen all over again, even with accredited labs. And, you know, they clean up a little bit when they have to be inspected again and go through the reaccreditation. You often see, you know, data change historically, and then it starts to, you know, kind of go back. And so I've seen, even around here in the Valley, I've seen test results on products here in Southern Oregon of THC values of over 40%. What? That doesn't make any sense. No. Um, and I tell people, I'm like, do you literally see THC dripping off of that plant? Like, I mean, <laughs> yes. you're talking about one molecule that's almost half of the weight of, you know, so some of this you have to apply common sense, but that's what's going on. And these are accredited labs that are issuing results like this. So it's something that I think until there's some better standardization and accountability on the labs. You know, one thing that I'd like to see is I think every state ought to have a reference laboratory that is doing, you know, investigating the statistics around all of the data that's coming out to look for anomalies, um, but also to be doing investigative work around things like these additives to be able to say like, you know, how can we get methods developed that are reliable to look for these things, issue those out to the commercial labs so that there's better, um, validity to the data sets that are being generated. Cause right now comparing data from one lab to the other is virtually impossible depending on what products you're talking about when it comes to edibles and topicals and, you know, complex formulated products, the results are all over the place. So there's a lot, there's a big mess still in the testing space. And so a, a lot of the data, you know, I would say, a lot of the data that really matters, like pesticide testing, like that's really good. 
and mycotoxin testing and, and that sort of stuff, microbials, especially if they're using DNA testing methods, like you can rely on all of that. But when you start getting into potency, there's just, and, and not just cannabinoids, but also terpenes, there's just so much incentive to commit fraud or just to even just working within the amount of variation you're allowed, you know, in your method to just push it towards the upper limit you know, right. to, to, to try to put that bias in there. Um, yeah, I've heard that you can test different parts of the cannabis plant, the top or the bottom, and you'll get different results. Yes. I, I think that all of this kind of speaks to how complicated it is for consumers to navigate these markets. Like, you don't, you shouldn't have to have a huge background in chemistry right. to be able to buy these products and use them. And I think that we really need better regulation. Like, I've heard even that it's like, I don't think it's impossible, but it's very, very difficult to get uh, THC potency over thirty yes. percent. And and but I see that commonly. Like I I, I got uh, several emails every now and then from this dispensary. Come on in, we got the thirty percent strains, and I'm like, I don't even really look at the cannabinoid content anymore same, because same. it's like, what am I supposed to do with this information? Like, oh yes, yeah, says twenty six percent THC, but. It doesn't really mean anything. It could be a totally different... I don't know how you fix that problem. I've heard of some uh, you know, really early technology that you, like something you can scan the plant with and it could just like bounce back, something like that. But I mean... Yeah, there's some like um, um, like near-infrared uh, devices and stuff that can uh, do testing. Their, their accuracy and precision is sometimes questionable, as you could imagine, like trying to reduce a, a, you know, a method like that down into a simple handheld device, but they do exist and they're not terrible. You know, it just depends when I do, I do a lot of teaching these days. And what I try to encourage people to think about is what information actually matters to you. Like, does it really matter the exact percentage of THC that's in there? Uh, to me, it, like you just said, the way that I purchase cannabis and I've been consuming cannabis for most of my life. and there was a time where I got really worked up about numbers and, you know, kind of early on, it was interesting and everything. But these days I really, I just go off of the way something looks and smells. Um, and I don't think about potency numbers, terpene profiles. I don't think about, um, indica sativa designations, which that's all bullshit anyway. Yeah. And strain names, which are basically brand names. None of that matters to me anymore. And I'm able to treat my own medical issues and everything just fine. I'm not having a, you know, I don't know. I don't feel like I'm missing out on anything. The one thing I do pay attention to is are the ratios. So, you know, how much THC to CBD um, when I'm having bad back pain, a four to one um, THC leaning uh, product is going to usually work better. Um so that's something that I tend to care about. Everything else is really just, you know, does it smell good? Do I, am I drawn to it? And I've also learned what smells I like, you know, that sort of thing. And that's just kind of how I go about it. Yeah. Uh, I, I kind of do that too. It's like the nose knows if you, if I can, if I, yeah. this is pre COVID, but you know, I used to be able to go into a dispensary and they'd hold out a jar and smell the jar. And if, if I smell too much mercy and I try to avoid that, I like balanced strains. Yeah. Uh, I was, I thought it was funny. I went to Washington 
uh, Seattle and I went to a dispensary and I was like, can I smell it? And they're like, no, I, that happened yeah, to me like, like just a few weeks ago. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, what? You can't just smell the plant before. No, that's illegal in Washington for some reason. Canada too. Um, and that's something that really, that I find really, really interesting. Um, because I, I do, th- I think that's really one of the most important things to make a choice. So it kind of, it sucks when you're stuck in this position of like, okay, I've got to spend money just to know whether I want this or not. Um, but yeah, I had that yeah. experience too in Seattle. That is sort of just like, I guess the life of a cannabis patient is you're already sort of experimenting and tweaking your regimen or whatever, uh, which is, is kind of fun, but sometimes it's like, man, I took a little too much. I need to, sometimes smoking hemp cigarettes help me come down a little if I'm too yeah. high. Um, I, I guess, you know, we're talking about all these problems, I really like to present people with solutions as well. Yeah. So, I mean, like, let's talk about the future of regulation and like maybe things you see that are improving better ways of doing this stuff so that, you know, people can feel comfortable consuming cannabis in a way that's not like this black box. Yeah. I mean, one thing that I encourage people to focus on are the things that, you know, humans have been interacting with for thousands of years, cannabis, flower, hash, you know, and and kind of fairly simple extracts, that realm of things is safer than it's ever been. Um, and I think that's an important message to like take from all this is a lot of the negatives that we talk about really falls more into the kind of fringe really of a lot of products. I mean, a lot of these products are very popular and that's why it's concerning, um, you know, when there are health issues um, and stuff that come up. But for cannabis flower and basic extracts and stuff, if you're getting them at a dispensary, it's cleaner and safer than, you know, we've ever experienced in history, probably. Um, I mean, some of the stuff, the level of testing that goes into, you know, for pesticides and mycotoxins, especially if you're in a place like California, I mean, it's above and beyond sometimes. And so, you know, that's been um, pretty cool to see, um, you know, just knowing that when it comes to those product types that that people do have a ton of uh, variety and it's all you know um known to be clean i mean pesticides were a huge concern even into the the medical markets and legal markets until recent years and now pesticides aren't really much of a concern anymore um pesticide testing is fairly well addressed in most states that have legalized so that's been a big improvement I'm really interested to see what happens with New York because New York has taken a unique approach to legalization and, you know, they're allowing gifting, which isn't always common, you know, like here in Oregon, you can't just give away weed, which is kind of a weird thing. Like weed is legal. Why can't you give it away? But the, usually the reason that, that that's not allowed is because different like contests and things are usually developed. And also like gifting is used to just move product into places, markets and stuff that it necessarily maybe shouldn't go to. But New York did not ban gifting. And so I'm interested to see what sort of uh, um, issues that raises. I think it provides a lot of interesting opportunity for small communities and stuff and home growers to kind of um, share and and do some interesting things there. So just seeing a state that's taking a different approach, because California mostly looked at Oregon and Colorado and kind of blended and Nevada and kind of blended a lot of things and then added some extra because that's just what California does usually when it comes to safety and stuff. And um, so New York took a different approach. 
also seeing states like Virginia. Yeah, so I'm like I said, I'm originally from Mississippi. So seeing states in the southeast start to, you know, come around to some of this is very fascinating to me. Um, I was really upset to see what happened in Mississippi. Uh, for those of, that have followed some of the law changes, Mississippi uh, in the last election actually through a, a voter initiative legalized medical cannabis. And then the state's Supreme Court uh, came around and basically threw out a technicality to um, nullify it. And and that's being appealed. Um, but still seeing that kind of stuff happen is very exciting to me. And that's just going to lead to more education, more awareness. And that's going to start to continue to erode the stigma, you know, that's around cannabis use, especially in places like that, where, you know, sometimes I think people out in California and Oregon and everything, we get so spoiled with just how open the culture is and, and everything. Um, and then, you know, I make trips back to Mississippi or talk to my friends and, you know, you remember that it's still very strictly prohibited in a lot of places and there's still a lot of stigma and a lot of just danger for users and uh, growers and other things. So seeing that all start to, you know, the dominoes are falling and, you know, there's a lot of change. And even in those Southeastern states where there has been a lot of prohibition and everything, there's so much support for cannabis in general um, and not just CBD. Um, and that was made apparent in the Mississippi ballot initiative for medical cannabis. Um, and so the evidence is there that there's a lot of positive change happening, even when it's kind of under the radar. And so that's really exciting. And then just seeing what people are doing with cannabinoids is super fascinating. Like all of these different products that are being made, some of them I think are really silly, but it's fun to see that they're, that they exist. Like, I don't know why anyone would need a CBD infused pillow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. I understand that. Cause I was really skeptical of CBD um, topicals, like rubbing cream. I was like, what the fuck? That doesn't make any sense, but there actually are a lot of cannabinoid receptors on your skin. So I don't know, maybe absorbing it through a pillow would work, but it just doesn't seem like a really efficient way to do that. It seems very low dose. Yeah. I mean, there's like, I remember hearing about like a caffeine infused shampoo and it's like, you, that doesn't work at all. Like you, you just, yeah. the, the levels of it and the absorption through the skin are just, just doesn't make any, it's just a way to sell you a product at a markup. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, one of the, are, are people selling THCP products? Because I, I did a story for vice on THCP when it was discovered. Um, and I haven't really seen much research on it. I didn't know people were actually selling it. Yeah. I thought it was just kind of like, Oh, this exists. It's 30 times more potent than THC, maybe. Maybe, um, yeah, that's the big thing. 30 times more affinity for the CB1 receptor. Um, and yeah, and that kind of gets to the THCO acetate thing too, that it's sometimes hard to decipher, you know, when we're looking at um, whether, you know, something has a greater affinity for receptor, does it actually mean it's that much more potent or not? I haven't been able to try THCP, but I know, you know, it's funny, one way to follow some of this stuff is when you uh, get in some of the cannabis circles on LinkedIn, um, you eventually start coming across some of these THCP manufacturers and other things. Um, and it, there was a lag. So when THCP was discovered in the plant, 
because uh, it had been synthesized before and speculated that it was in the plant. Um, but when it was finally discovered and that news broke, there was about a lag of um, at least six months or so uh, before I started to see that people were experimenting with, you know, realistically thinking about trying to bring it to market. And then it took about, you know, a little more time for that. But now there aren't a lot of companies doing it, but I've seen at least two or three that um, are starting to advertise, uh, you know, B2B on LinkedIn, um, that they've got THCP. But it's one of those things, like I said, what form of THCP is it? Is it Delta 9 THCP, Delta 8, Delta 10, Delta whatever, you know, um, and is it clean? You know, all of those sort of things. But it is starting to circulate. And it's one of those things that if I ever get my hands on it, just with my own curiosity, I'm sure I'll try it just to see, you know, how that compares. Um, I haven't had the chance yet. This kind of brings me to like the future of cannabinoids. I mean, we haven't really gotten to some of the, you know, minor cannabinoids that are a little more popular or well-known, I should say, um, like THCV or CBG. Um, Because we could talk all day about this stuff. There's like literally dozens of cannabinoids and they all could have some interesting properties. There's just really not uh, any good research here, which is why I think it's really interesting, you know, that uh, you worked at University of Mississippi that the cannabis there is notoriously bad. It's like alfalfa. Uh, it's freeze dried. It's low THC. It's low CBD, I think. And it just does not reflect at all what people are getting from dispensaries, let alone the black market. And that's what scientists that, uh, you know, do federal research or federally funded research. Uh, that's what they have to use. It's, I think that's finally changing. Um, saw some news about that a couple weeks ago. It's like, <laughs> it's funny because it's like Canada and Israel are getting so ahead of the U.S. in research, and it's like yeah. frustrating that we can't just do some good research on this stuff. This plant has so much to teach us, and we barely even scratched the surface on this. I was listening to uh, your your interview recently with Dr. Reggie Guadino. Um, he's great. I interviewed him once before for Men's Health, and he taught me so much uh, that has really stuck with me. And so I, I kind of want to talk about that a little bit like you were talking about, um, you know, we could maybe genetically engineer the cannabis plant to produce drugs that we've never even thought of before. What is that looking like right now? Like, so these days, the thing that I uh, get the most excited about in terms of like cannabis research, cannabinoid science research is thinking about how the lessons we've learned from studying cannabis, how it can provide us with a unique lens through which we can look at other plants, other animals, even other fungi, and, and start to look at these cannabinoid-like compounds that actually appear all throughout nature. Uh, you know, there's a, a flower, a helichrysum uh, variety that grows in Africa that has a CBG-like compound in it. Um, there are truffles that have anandamide-like compounds in them, which are a, a anandamide is an endogenous cannabinoid that the human body makes. Um, there are there's a variety of rhododendron that has a compound very similar to CBD, like the molecule um, uh, that's in this variety that I'm that I'm talking about is extremely similar to CBD. So there are probably a lot of interesting molecules in plants that we've overlooked because we haven't had this context through which to evaluate them, to think about, you know, um, 
you know, based on what we know about other cannabinoids, what might these cannabinoids do in the body or what sort of therapeutic compounds might we be able to make from them um, and that sort of thing. So that gets me really excited. Um, and then also understanding how non-cannabinoid compounds and plants are influencing the human body's own endogenous cannabinoid system. And um, this is something I've been thinking more and more about lately because there are, for instance, a lot of pigment compounds in plants are flavonoids. And there are a variety of flavonoids like delphinidin and a variety of others that actually have been shown to interact with cannabinoid receptors. Uh, the terpene uh, beta-caryophylline is now thought of as kind of a dietary cannabinoid, interacts with CB2 receptors. Uh, there's a polysaccharide in turkey tail mushrooms that interacts with cannabinoid receptors. And so just thinking about how cannabis research is changing the way that I just think about all of these things and think about all these plants, um, that gets me really, really excited because it shows you the new frontier that's emerging, that cannabis has kind of opened this doorway into an entirely new frontier of of you know, biomedical research, biochemical research, um, that's going to be playing out indefinitely. Um, it's like, uh, discovering any new class of compounds and, and these aren't new. It's just, it's taken us a while because of prohibition and, you know, all of these cultural dynamics to apply the tools that we've been applying to other drugs, other plants, other medicines and stuff for the past 50, 70 years, um, applying those tools to cannabis and, cannabinoid products. And so um, I'm really optimistic about the future of cannabinoid research in general. And like we said about, you know, Delta-8 and Delta-10, THCP, all of these things. To me, I think of all of these things as tools in a tool chest. And where we're at now is having to figure out what the appropriate applications for these tools are how to help people use these tools effectively so that they don't accidentally hurt themselves or something. The main issue with cannabinoids and, and cannabis in general, like the, the worst thing that usually happens are drug interactions. Um, you know, there are drug interactions to be aware of, you know, and that's usually with high doses of cannabinoids and chronic consumption, but you know, that kind of stuff exists. So understanding you know, those dynamics to help people navigate and use these tools effectively. Um, I think there's, there's lots of reasons to be optimistic and um, you know, for all of the negative that we've talked about today of all of the things that people have to be concerned about or be skeptical about. Um, I think there's plenty to be excited about um, and to be very optimistic about too. I a hundred percent agree. There's a, it's way more optimism than pessimism uh, for me in the future of, of cannabis. And it, I think it will really unlock a lot of um, uh, natural products science, which has uh, historically been looked down upon a lot, you know, I think. Yeah. Um, because early natural products research was pretty shoddy. It didn't have a lot of controls. Um, it was sort of seen as this fringe thing, but like it's slowly coming back into the mainstream. There's this uh, researcher I really like, Dr. Quave, um, and she's doing stuff looking at new antibiotics and plants and stuff. And she's like going one of, one of the studies that she did was she looked at this uh, old, this old writing from this civil war Confederate guy, you know, totally racist asshole that uh, had slaves, but he was a doctor and he like talked to the natives and he like 
collected all this information and he used some of these plants as antibiotics to treat war, uh, wounds during the Civil War. And they're going back and like analyzing these plants and finding, oh, well, they actually do have antimicrobial properties. And maybe we could develop these into new antibiotics because antibiotic resistance is a thing. Yeah. So very fascinating research. And like that's just I think cannabis kind of bleeds into that a little bit. Um, even even directly, um, because there's a lot of uh, research looking directly at that antibiotic activity. Um, in, in cannabinoids, CBD, CBG, and others to, for that very reason, to try to figure out alternatives for treating MRSA and, um, and stuff like that. Yeah. I know that, uh, especially at the beginning of the pandemic, a lot of people were like, well, cannabis can, can cure it. Can cure COVID. <laughs> I made me roll my eyes, but I mean, hey, there is some evidence that, like, you know, cannabis can be anti inflammatory. Inflammation right. is one of the big problems with COVID 19. Um, it's just like, I really roll my eyes at people that are just like, throw around the word cure or yes. cannabis and can treat literally everything it can treat a lot and and it's the fact that we like had this whole system in our body the endocannabinoid system that was overlooked until basically right. the 90s and it has so much to do with regulation of the immune system and, and mood and all these other things like and we just totally are barely even researching this it's yeah. it's an interesting time to be alive i think that I keep hearing this theory that like, you know, canna cannabis is going to lead to um, personalized medicine. You know, we'll have these formulations of cannabinoids and terpenes. that's sort of just like built for you and your body and that kind of thing. And I don't know if we'll ever see that, but it's interesting, which, you know, yeah. brings up the question I wanted to ask um, is, do you believe in the entourage effect? This is this idea that uh, all the all the different components of cannabis work together to kind of create this synergy, and synergy is you know one plus one equals three. The sum of its parts is m more or something. And I, I hear criticism of the entourage effect. I've written about it many times. It's really fascinating phenomenon to me. But there's a lot of people that are like it doesn't exist. Uh, it's only really the entourage effect is specifically talking about two AG, which is this endocannabinoid and its other related metabolites. And there's like some research that have come out. I think you might. I've probably seen this study that came out a year or two ago that was like terpenes do not act on the CB1 or CB2 receptor. Maybe there isn't an entourage effect. What are your thoughts on this? Yeah, this is another thing I really I like talking about because it's something I've, I've thought about quite a bit. So there's an interview I did with uh, Dr. Vincenzo DiMarzo on the Curious About Cannabis podcast that I recommend people listen to that are interested in this um, topic because Dr. DiMarzo was an endocannabinoid researcher that was um, publishing those papers in the nineties, you know, that you referenced uh, about the endocannabinoid system. And he was one of the authors that published, you know, uh, for, for one of the first times in the late nineties, what the endocannabinoid system is, how it functions, that sort of thing. And he was also a part of a study that you referenced um, that referred to this concept of an entourage effect. And in the paper where this entourage effect concept was first proposed, uh, it was a study, like you said, looking at 2-AG, which is an endogenous cannabinoid in the body. And researchers basically found that um, uh, this compound was behaving differently at cannabinoid receptors when it was in the presence of other compounds. But those compounds... Uh, those extraneous compounds didn't actually have activity at cannabinoid receptors themselves. So there was this idea of, 
you know, there's an entourage effect here that these, you know, uh, sort of like a politician with their entourage that, um, you know, these, these, uh, members of the entourage, they're not, uh, directly effective, um, you know, at the site of action, but when they hang out with, uh, 2AG, um, you know, they have a collective activity that's different. And like you said, it's kind of, um, uh, it often gets uh, sort of conflated with this idea of synergy or things being greater than the sum of their parts. So, uh, yeah, when the entourage effect was first proposed, it was really this idea of there are compounds that don't have activity at cannabinoid receptors that change uh, the activity of endocannabinoids um, and how they affect cannabinoid receptors. And that concept over the years into the early 2000s and mid 2000s got um, uh, conflated with a concept called the ensemble effect. Um, and there were some papers written about uh, one actually called greater than the sum of its parts. Uh, I think it's called like cannabis extracts greater than the sum of its parts um, that you know, talks about this idea that the compounds in cannabis um, work together to provide unique effects that are different than any single constituent could provide on its own. But that's a subtle, subtly different thing than what Dr. DeMarzo and his colleagues proposed when they first talked about the entourage effect. And so the kind of pop culture idea of entourage effect is one thing. The kind of um, more technical scientific version of that is uh, kind of slightly different. Um, and when I asked Dr. DeMarzo this question, you asked me of, you know, sort of what's going on with the entourage effect and, um, and that sort of thing, you know, he pointed out that trying to study the, the pharmacology of a plant is an incredibly difficult task. Just understanding how a single compound works or a few compounds in a mixture work is a very difficult task um, because the human body is really complicated and there's a lot of variables to consider. Um, and so, you know, I think that there's not a good science to explain what the phenomena that people refer to as the entourage effect, which is, you know, this herbal synergy usually presumed to be between the cannabinoids and terpenes. Uh, there was a more recent study looking at terpenes that found that terpenes can interact with cannabinoid receptors at really high doses. Um, but that study, I don't know how relevant it actually is because the doses are so high. It doesn't really compare to herbal cannabis or cannabis extracts. Right. Um, but there's so many dynamics to consider. I mean, <laughs> cannabinoid receptors don't appear by themselves in the body. They appear a lot of times kind of joined with other receptors like serotonin receptors. Um, so there can be all sorts of compounds that could be eliciting unique actions when in complex mixtures like a, you know, an herbal form of cannabis or cannabis extract that are just very hard to um, tease out. And so, I think that certainly there are formulations of cannabinoids and there are varieties of cannabis that affect people differently. And I think that's fairly obvious, um, especially when you talk about different ratios of cannabinoids. Um, I, I spoke with uh, Dr. David Miri out of Israel um, some time back, and 
you know, he reminded me to be careful about making assumptions about trace concentrations of other cannabinoids. Um, and that, you know, it may not necessarily be terpenes driving some of these differences in effects, but it could even be the presence of trace amounts of other cannabinoids. So it's just a complicated puzzle. Um, and so I guess the, that's a long winded way of saying that in general, um, I certainly agree that herbal synergy is a thing and that compounds interact differently in complex mixtures than when, um, you know, delivered alone. But as far as being able to utilize information about the chemical profile of a cannabis product to then predict an effect, um, we're not there yet. Um, and we won't be for a long time. I mean, there's, uh, there are like genetics companies now trying to create diagnostic tools for assessing someone's, um, you know, kind of genetic underpinnings of their endocannabinoid system to try to understand how to direct dosing. Um, and so the, the human physiology piece is another core part of the puzzle. It's not just about the chemistry of the product, but the chemistry of, you know, and the, the biochemical dynamics and things of the person. And so being able to predict effects is the part of the entourage effect that I uh, uh, don't like so much and get more cautious about and, and try to dissuade people from kind of discussing that way. You know, something that's high in linalool is not necessarily going to make someone tired or sleepy. Something that's high in um, terpinaline is not necessarily going to make somebody, you know, feel um, active or, you know, um, energized and, so we have to be careful about the assumptions that we make based off of the limited amount of information that exists. Um, and a lot of the discussion around entourage effects is kind of, um, <laughs> in a funny way, often based around research around terpenes um, that stems from preclinical research with isolated terpenoids. Um, and so trying to make any claims about what a product is going to do based on research like that is kind of the antithesis to the whole idea of the entourage effect in the first place. Um, so I just want people to kind of be careful when they hear about the entourage effect, like certainly herbal synergy is a thing, but entourage effect as it's referred to in the general cannabis culture is not what scientists originally presented. Um, and even the thing that scientists originally presented, Dr. DeMarzo said, he's like, there's really no, like the model that they were presenting at the time, they actually discovered that a lot of those compounds had activities that counteracted the effects that 2AG had at cannabinoid receptors. So he's like, there's not even an entourage effect in that case. He's like, there is in one context, but when you start to look at more variables, uh, the entourage effect goes away. Um, and so it's certainly very complicated and very hard to study. Um, and I guess I'll leave it at that. Yeah, it's uh, definitely one of the hardest things to study, especially because it's still schedule one. And I, I, you know, I hear people say, don't use the entourage effect as a term um, because it's, it is sort of been this uh, thing that's been co-opted by the cannabis industry to sort of, I mean, we, you talked about this a little bit earlier, like the sativa indica thing, that, that dichotomy doesn't exist. And I kind of have to roll my eyes when people say sativa indica, but I, <laughs> I try not to say anything because it's like, you don't want to be that guy that's like, oh, explaining that there's no point. There's no point. You know, it's just a name that doesn't really predict effects. Um, but that's, you know, part of the problem is that this, 
market has been so quasi legal for so long that people kind of had to work on their own science and come up with their own explanations for things just so that they could make things accessible for consumers. And I'd like for actual science to uh, catch up. But uh, first of all, we need it to be federally legalized for that to happen. And it, it get back it gets back to this idea of like what what information do you really care about or need to know and and how do you work with that? You know, I think you know, it's easy to think about these ideas and like this idea of personalized medicine, you know, of wanting to get to this point where you could evaluate a product and see its chemical profile, genetically test an individual and get a sense of their, you know, genomic profile even their metabolic profile and everything and be able to hone in on, you know, what that person needs without a lot of trial and error. And certainly like we're going to get closer and closer to that. Um, but the trial and error piece is always going to be involved. There, there are always going to be variables to, you know, that um, can't be, you know, held accounted for in all of that, you know, labs don't test for every compound that could be interesting to know about in cannabis. They test for seven to 12 or 14 cannabinoids and usually, you know, 15 to 30 or so terpenoids. And there's, you know, the cannabis plant makes over 150 cannabinoids and over 200 terpenoids. So even just with that in mind, like there's a long way to go. And so, you know, I always just try to encourage people that if you're really interested in understanding how different cannabis varieties affect you um, or different types of cannabis products affect you, it kind of goes back to like journaling and being in tune with your own body and recognizing, you know, that just because someone says something about how a product affected them, that doesn't necessarily mean much for you. It might, but you kind of have to take it with a grain of salt and, um, you know, and not everybody needs to know, you know, those nuanced ways their body is reacting to things. Like some people genuinely just, you know, want to get high and want to enjoy cannabis and don't necessarily care about any of the other stuff. And then other people, um, whether they're connoisseurs or patients or whatever, you know, do really want to dive into all of that. and. You know, so just coming back around to thinking critically and, you know, what information actually matters and, and what are you trying to get out of your experience? And if you're really wanting to, you know, dive deep, then experience journaling is to me still one of the best ways to do it. Um, and there's some great tools that have been developed for that. There are apps and, uh, you know, nice journals and things that have been made. Um, specifically for cannabis uh, to help people evaluate um, how things are affecting them. So um, I really recommend people look into that if they're, you know, particularly interested in entourage effects and all of that. Sure. Um, well, this just seems like a good place to wrap up. Uh, this is a really interesting conversation. I always love nerding out about cannabis. Yeah, um, likewise. Jason, where can people find you? Uh, yeah. So I'm, um, as far as curious about cannabis goes, you know, um, we're all over social media, uh, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube to search for curious about cannabis. Uh, we also have an app. So, uh, currently only on Android, it'll be coming to iOS soon. Um, but it's kind of an easy way to stay plugged into the kind of curious about cannabis ecosystem that's kind of been building. Cause it's 
been a really interesting journey doing writing the book and and doing the podcast and also teach series of uh, workshops and stuff. We've curious about cannabis has really developed into this interesting kind of learning community. Um, and so there's a variety of different things people can uh, kind of engage with uh, depending on their interests. Um, so if you're on Android, you can look for the Curious About Cannabis app, and that's a really great way. The podcast is all in there. Um, there are like feeds for re- new research papers coming out and all sorts of stuff like that. Um, and then our website is cacpodcast.com. Um, pretty easy. And, um, you know, then there's other projects that we work on too. Um, so we have a, as part of natural learning enterprises, you know, the, the education company behind curious about cannabis, we have a serious about psychedelics program, um, that is in its early stages that people can check out, um, very similar to the curious about cannabis kind of style, um, uh, of things. We also have uh, some courses and things rolling out around cannabis science, psychedelic science, um, herbal medicine, um, kind of all of that, that kind of realm of things. And uh, th- there's also another podcast people can check out um, where we spin off in these other kind of non-cannabis topics, um, but often that end up relating back in some form or another, but isn't life curious. Um and you can find that at isn'tlifecurious.com or just search for isn't life curious wherever you listen to podcasts. Um, and definitely reach out to me. I'm always happy to engage with people. Um, education is a huge passion of mine, which is why I do, you know, all of the uh, media and outreach stuff that I do. So um, definitely feel free to uh, send me messages, ask questions. Um, I'm always happy to get people pointed and uh, directions to find, you know, whatever kind of information they're looking for. Um, and yeah, I hope people enjoy the content. Well, awesome. Thank you so much uh, for your time today and everything. I really learned a lot and, uh, I hope this will be interesting for people. I think it will be, uh, there's so many evolving parts of the whole cannabis scene that, uh, it's so interesting all the time. Uh, so thanks for coming on and talking about that. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. It's been great to chat. And um, yeah, I look forward to continuing to see what all happens on Narcotica as well. You guys are doing great work, so keep it up. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Narcotica, an independent production by Christopher Maraff, Zachary Siegel, and Troy Farah. I'm your co-producer, Garrett Farah. If you like the show, you can support us by joining our Patreon. Just go to patreon.com forward slash narcotica. A little goes a long way, so we are very thankful to the people that decide to help us out. If Patreon isn't for you, that's fine. You can still help us by spreading the word. Be sure to rate us wherever you get your podcasts and tell a few friends. Our theme music is by Glass Boy. Jenny Shea is the voice of Narcotica. And additional music is by Dumb with Fish. You can follow us on Twitter, YouTube, Facebook if the servers aren't being scrubbed, and Instagram. Those are the best ways for you to contact us should you have a suggestion, complaint, or just want to whisper nice things in our ears. SoundCloud, YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, you name it. That's everything, guys. Have a good week. Hello in TV land.